This is Kick-Ass News. I'm Ben Mathis. When you need energy on the go and don't have time to wait in line, grab Espresso Monster. Espresso Monster is a premium blend of espresso and cream made with freshly brewed espresso coffee, hormone-free milk, and a unique energy blend complete with taurine and B vitamins. Each can has three shots of espresso and comes in vanilla espresso and espresso and cream flavors. I had one this morning before I came into the studio, and let me tell you, it gave me just the boost I needed to get my day going. Plus, it tastes so delicious, I'd drink it anyway. So close your eyes, take a sip, and enjoy Espresso Monster today. And now, enjoy the podcast. Hi, I'm Ben Mathis. Welcome to Kick-Ass News. Laurel and Hardy are widely regarded as the greatest comedy partnership in movie history. Between 1927 and 1950, they made over 107 film appearances, defining the notion of the double act with infectious chemistry and hilarious routines that seemed effortless but were honed down to the finest detail. Then, in 1953, diminished by age and with their golden era as the kings of Hollywood comedy now behind them, Stan Laurel and Oliver Hardy made a final effort to recapture the old magic with a variety hall tour of Britain. The charm and beauty of their performances shined through, and the tour became a hit, just as long-buried ghosts and Oliver's failing health began to threaten their precious partnership. Now, Academy Award-nominated actors Steve Coogan and John C. Riley portray this most tender and poignant of creative marriages during their swan song in a new film called Stan and Ollie. And today, John and Steve join me on the podcast to talk about stepping into the shoes of this legendary comedy duo and how some remarkable special effects makeup and more than a little bit of padding helped John C. Riley step into the famously large pants of Oliver Hardy. Steve and John share memories of watching the classic short films of Laurel and Hardy when they were kids, how the director of Stan and Ollie's emergency appendectomy gave them an opportunity to make a pilgrimage to the Stan Laurel Museum in England, and how they went about recreating the pair's famous comedy routines. They discuss what goes into a 35-year partnership like Laurel and Hardy's, what it must have been like for the two stars to have no identities separate of each other, and why Stan and Ollie's on-screen friendship didn't become a real friendship until the very end. Plus, John C. Riley talks about being part of another famous comedy duo. We debate the pros and cons of the old Hollywood studio system and the controversy over Oliver Hardy's most famous line. Coming up with John C. Riley and Steve Coogan in just a moment. Today I'm sitting down with Oscar nominees Steve Coogan and John C. Riley, who stars the classic comedy duo Laurel and Hardy in Stan and Ollie, which opens in theaters December 28th. Guys, thanks for sitting down with me. Pleasure. My pleasure. First, just you know, for anyone who doesn't really know Laurel and Hardy in this day and age, Laurel was the skinny one and Oliver Hardy was the fat one, right? Right. Okay. Which is not an aspersion on John here. Got to, I have to interrupt there and tell you that John John wore a giant fat suit, so so he's not he's not yeah. uh, in that league. <laughs> yeah, Oliver Hardy was a lot more than the fat guy, and Stan was a lot more than the skinny guy. They they actually contributed so much joy to the world 
yeah. that um, it's a really special thing to be able to bring them back mm-hmm. to life and remind people of their work, not so much our work, but use our work to remind people of their work and get mm-hmm. people to look at their films yeah. again. Yeah, and I absolutely loved this movie, not just because as a kid I grew up watching the old Hal Roach shorts, but there's also just something about a pair of entertainers in their swan song years. It always reminds me of Chaplin and Keaton and Limelight or movies like The Sunshine Boys. Uh, what do you think there is that's just so irresistible about the archetype of a comedy duo a little bit past their prime and who may have hung around a little longer than they should have, maybe? Um, I, I, I think that, well, I'd say the appeal of a comedy duo, especially Lauren Hardy, is it's... Uh, it's about friendship. So instead of the sole mm-hmm. comic performer who can be a kind of fool at odds with the world, uh, Stan and Ollie were at odds with the world, but they were at odds with the world together. Mm-hmm. And um, that's an important part of the appeal is that, um, uh, and, and why people gravitated towards them is because underpinning all the comedy that they did and did very skillfully and, and with great craft. Um, was uh, a kind of love for each other that despite their, their differences and the scrapes and, and misfortunes that they get up to, um, that you didn't doubt that they were they were uh, their best buddies, you know, and that, uh, as John said on, on numerous occasions, you know, uh, Oliver may be impatient with Stan, but he never leaves him. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. You mentioned Limelight. That is That is a great example of a of a behind-the-scenes kind of movie about comedians, but there, there aren't that many. And I think one of the reasons that this film has an appeal for audiences, even if you don't know who Laurel and Hardy are, is because people love going backstage. I think that's what reality TV is all about, getting behind the scenes, behind the artifice. And um, there's a fascination with that, and for good reason, because it's a very interesting life. It's a life that Steve and I have both had. So yeah. that's something that we share with Stan and Ollie, this life spent with sore knees and sweaty brows and in makeup rooms behind, you know, behind the stage talking about ticket sales. Like, that's stuff that Steve and I have lived. So um, I think, yeah. yeah, yeah. That, and, that, and the fact that these, these two in particular, Stan and Ollie, were a miraculous pairing. And by miraculous, I mean... They were plucked out of obscurity and thrown together without knowing each other, without having an act. Mm-hmm. And they came, they became one of the most beautiful partnerships in the history of the human race, <laughs> I think. Yeah. I yeah. can't yeah. think of many yeah. other Iconic. examples. I mean, uh, uh, some things have occurred to me since I've been talking about this movie. A lot. And one of the things that uh, having John and I are both having experienced working in comedy, um, uh, and uh, I think it kind of um, it sets us up, although it's a daunting task, I think we had uh, enough um, tools in our in our toolboxes to uh, to be able to go about it, you know, um, with some uh, tenacity. But uh, but I, I, one thing I've learned about the, the comedy of Stan Ali doing this movie is how uh, healing comedy can be and uh, how unifying it can be. And we take it for granted. We don't really st- stand back from comedy and look at it or analyze it much because that, that by its nature, it's there just to be enjoyed. But um, there's very few other kind of uh, form, uh, art form that can unite people of different political views, different uh, uh, religions, different world views in a moment uh, when something's funny and everyone yeah. laughs at the same time. And that's uh, incredibly 
powerful and something that we I think should uh, and something we need more of in this day and age when there's so much acrimony sure. around and, uh, and something that should be saluted you know. Now, did you guys come to this as fans of Laurel and Hardy already? Did you grow up on these shorts and the features? Yeah, it's funny. People have been asking us a, lo a lot. You know, when's the first time you became aware of Laurel and Hardy? And my answer is, I've been aware of Laurel and Hardy as long as I've been aware. You know, <laughs> they have this internal quality, and I, not only because of their act, they have this internal quality of being fat and skinny, salt and pepper, yin and yang, Stan and Ollie. They have that kind of presence as if they've always been here and always will be mm -hmm. but in my own life from my earliest earliest memories of watching tv they were there they were always been a part of my life yeah I, the same same as john you know the, the reruns on tv and everything yeah. but I, yeah, even yeah. in the uk they were oh yeah sure <coughs> well John, some, summer vacation in the, uh, the uk they would uh, every morning they would repeat the same uh, group of shows and uh, a lot of them were u.s imports like we'd have casey jones the banana splits and uh and then Stan and Ollie in the middle of it, and some European imports dubbed, you know. But uh, there'd be a whole bunch of shows that were shown repeated every day, and that's uh, so it became, you know, it became intimate with mm -hmm. with uh, all their films. Yeah. And it must have been intimidating to step into these guys' shoes, but particularly when you're playing a famous, iconic comedy duo like Laurel and Hardy, who were together for 35 years, and as we've already said, had a deep love for each other. Going into the project, uh, were either of you nervous that you might not have the chemistry to pull it off? Um, that's a loaded question, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I think, I think, uh, well, for my mind, when John agreed, I knew John was uh, more cautious than me. I mean, I was mm -hmm. cautious, but my vanity uh, outweighed my caution because I, I, I thought, what a gift to be able to do this. And John was more had more trepidation. Um, but I, 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 for me the only thing that for me the green light for me to do it would be when john signed uh, signed up mm -hmm. uh, chemistry is a funny thing you know it's it, we talk yeah. about chemistry as if it's this mysterious thing that falls upon people like a gentle rain only some people <laughs> <laughs> i met her and we had chemistry and i knew we were bound to be married uh and so there's this tendency to feel like you either have chemistry or you yeah. don't uh, in my experience, having done four duo movies this year, including this one, um, yeah. is that you can create chemistry, but you have mm -hmm. to, first of all, you have to be working with someone who's not a jerk, <laughs> which <laughs> luckily enough, Steve isn't. Uh, Thanks for saying that. <laughs> Hopefully he feels the same way. <laughs> it, it needs to I, be pointed I, out sometimes. I, I'll but. answer in my own time. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, what happens is that if you collaborate with someone, you stand shoulder to shoulder with them, sort of have a foxhole like experience with mm -hmm. them which is what it was like being shot out of a cannon mm -hmm. into this incredibly intimidating prospect of playing these two legends um what eventually happens is you fail in front of each other a bunch of times yeah mm -hmm. and the guy likes you anyway yeah and then you develop trust and you, you're vulnerable yeah. in front of each other and then presto change oh you have chemistry and that yeah. really is i think the process as we went through the rehearsals of the characters that is how we found the well, chemistry. Yeah, yeah, I guess it's like, you know, we needed each other, just like Stan and Ollie did, to pull this off. And, um, and uh, you know, and when we were, when we were, fortunately, when we rehearsed, we were kind of, uh, we were rehearsing the, 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 the dancers and the sketches. We had four weeks rehearsal before the movie started. That was uh, not only a chance for us to, to bond uh, and, and get to know each other, 
um, it gives a chance to sort of um, step into the shoes of Stan and Ollie because they would have had to rehearse those routines just like we did. Uh, so. Okay. So, so, yeah, okay. So, you know, a lot of times there aren't rehearsals in a movie, but because no. you were doing choreographed dances no. and that yeah. sort of thing, and also, routine, yeah, famous, and also, uh, also routines. Yeah, also to, anecdotally. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. But anecdotally, there was uh, also the director was uh, had uh, appendicitis uh, and had to delay the shoot by a week. So, John and I were kind of twiddling our thumbs, uh, and I said, why don't you come up to the north of England, where I uh, have a place, and uh, it's close to the Laurel and Hardy Museum, and I said, let's go on a little uh, a little uh, a pilgrimage, you know, um, oh, and just oh, in, cool. the, in the hometown where Stan Laurel grew up. So, Oh, that's right, because uh, he was an Englishman. That's right, yeah. and um, so it was, that That also was, it was a, a kind of um, a bonus in, in uh, not only in just being, being, having to approach the the roles, but in some ways, the you know, if we were playing um, arch enemies, then we wouldn't need to develop chemistry. But mm. we, we 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 had to do this. They had to be friends. We inevitably are playing two characters that to, to rely on each other and help each other, and that's literally what happened to us. Yeah. Now, John, you've been part of an ongoing comedy team of sorts. I think. Uh, what have you done about five movies with Will Ferrell, including Holmes and Watson, that's coming up next year? Do you think you could have ever done 107 movies with Will without wanting to kill each other? Well, that's an interesting question. And it is what sets Laurel and Hardy apart from their peers and for, for everyone else, for that matter, in the, in, the, in the history of the world. They were performers that only worked together from the beginning of their yeah. careers until the end, with one notable exception that we talk about in the film. But... Um, that is a, a special strain on the relationship to have not only your professional identity, you know, grafted to someone else, but your personal identity. Like when people would see these guys in the street alone, they would say, where's, where's the other one? Where's yeah, the other one? Yeah. Like people yeah, couldn't accept the fact yeah, that they weren't yeah, together yeah. all the time. And yeah. even I, like that was one of the shocking things to learn about while doing the research for the film was that they weren't like very chummy socially when they're in their mm -hmm. heyday in the 1930s they were very different people and they'd go off in their different ways and it wasn't until uh they did these theatrical tours that they really became close personally and where they saw the the other human being as opposed to the mm -hmm. other side of the act yeah yeah it's um it, it's it's a very interesting way though the friendship developed uh, kind of in in reverse because um Back in the day, uh, when they were making the movies, uh, Oliver would want to... I, I, I was thinking about it before, and I think Oliver worked to live, and Stan lived to work. Mm. Uh, Interesting. And, um, and that, had, that meant that one of them was a perfectionist, and was, I would imagine, slightly, slightly less happy than in his life overall than... Mm -hmm. than Ollie, who uh, you know, who you know, took time to to smell the coffee. Yeah. Um, uh, but uh, um, in the last years when they toured, they were living in each other's pockets, and uh, I think they discovered that at the end of their year, at the end of their days, that all the people in the professional and personal life had come and gone, and the only constant was the guy opposite them. Um, wow. And, and yeah, and I think they recognized that in the, the autumn of the That was a real stroke of genius by our writer, Jeff Pope, to set this story rather than try to tell, uh, you know, a stock biopic kind of story right, linear, that we focused yeah. on this one kind of elegiac period of their life right at the end of Oliver's mm -hmm. life. Yeah. Um, I think that was a really a great way for us to have some artistic license in terms of what they might be saying to each other, but also... Um, 
an important period of, of their life where you could kind of learn everything you need to know about these two yeah. guys by focusing on that chapter of their lives. Yeah, in some ways it seems like this is the period when their real-life friendship catches up to their on-screen friendship that people have always just assumed was there. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, their work was that powerful. Like, it's, it would be like when I was a kid... I never even thought of them as independent entities. I would think they would sure. they would go home together and they mm -hmm. would sleep in their bed together and they would mm -hmm. cook breakfast <laughs> together and then they'd come and tell this story. Like, um, It's hard even now to separate them yeah. in your mind. I want to talk about the division of labor between Stan and Ollie. Steve, is it fair to say that Stan Laurel was the creative force behind the team? Uh, well, only as well. I mean, they were put. They were brought together by Hal Roach, the uh, right. film, the studio right. uh, Who also producer. Did the the R gang comedies. The That's right. Rascals and so and, and he he, uh, uh, he so he was the architect to bring them together. But but beyond that, uh, the yeah, the chief creative was uh, Stan Laurel, and he he kind of took authorship of the whole thing really. Um, but. Uh, and they only uh, that's not to diminish uh, uh, Ollie's role because when they were on set, Ollie would work and work, you know, and and take care with things and talk about make suggestions and all the rest of it. But um, uh, but once once uh, he clocked off, he clocked off, you know. And I think uh, Stan did. It's almost like Stan was writing for an audience of one, and if yeah. Oliver said, "Yeah, that'll be funny," <laughs> boom, that's the, yeah. that's the bit we'll use, you know, like. Yeah. But it was, and it seems like an in, a small, st insignificant step in that long process as of him doing all this writing and work. But it was a very important one for them. That last sounding board moment when Stan mm -hmm, would say, "What course. about this?" and Oliver, yeah. Oliver's reaction would yeah, kind of yeah. set what it, what uh, what was going to work for both of them. Yeah, that's one of the most fun parts of this is to see you bouncing ideas off of Ollie and how you're kind of just like he said, doing it for an audience of one and. One thing that I kind of come away with in this is these guys just love to entertain. It didn't matter whether it was a theater of thousands or a hotel desk clerk or each other. Mm -hmm. They were the type of personalities like, say, a Mel Brooks who just walks in and lights up a room and can't help himself. In the movie, it seems like they were the kind of people who just wherever they were, they were always on. Oh, that's what I was yeah. going to say. I was going to say that, 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 that when they when they did entertain people in in uh, in, uh, in the if they bumped into someone, they would do a little routine, and they did do this in the, when they were together, uh, when they were on tour, especially if someone saw them, they would do a little bit of a routine for them. I think they that they it, it was slightly different with them because I felt they did that because they felt they had. They they had an obligation to mm -hmm. uh, like a responsibility to, but like a like a an ethical responsibility to to be the people that the people wanted them to be. Mm -hmm. I also think you have to keep in context the time at which they were their most popular in their heyday when audiences responded to them. It was during the Great Depression in America. It yeah. was a very very difficult time That's for right. people. Mm -hmm. So and they were not. Uh, great stars that were brought together to make a super team they were struggling they both went to hollywood to just try to make a living yeah. and so i think they never lost that understanding and that humility that comes yeah. with it could have been me on that bread line yeah. and so when when they saw the joy that they were giving to to people in desperate straits that it really resonated for them in a different way that then you know people like yeah. us had grown up in a very comfortable you know situation i think those kind of hard knocks really teach yeah. you uh humility and it teaches you that um everyone should be treated with 
yeah. with dignity and kindness if you can. You know? there, there's yeah. a kind, there's a kind, definite kindness and warm-heartedness to Stan Lee. That doesn't mean it's lowbrow. Right. It doesn't mean that it's not smart because it, it is smart. It's smart comedy, and they they're quite subtle and nuanced mm. in a lot of their performances, mm. um, just in in between the slapstick. Um, but they but they they actually uh, you know the, the the warmth of the comedy is something I think that. You, you forget because uh, it was again not only was the depression the rise of fascism in Europe at the time it was pre-second world war remember and um, people there was an appetite for this uh, f- sort of this um, w- loving comedy because mm-hmm. uh, I, just, you know. I just thought of a good example of how their how their comedy could have been dumb but was in fact intelligent so there's this whole thing the cliche is fatty fall down, you know, like a fat guy falls down, yeah. ha ha ha. But what was funny about it when Oliver did it was not the fall down part, it was afterwards right. the annoyance His with reaction. my place yeah. in life. Yeah. You know, and that's Another deeper than just yeah. fatty fall down, yeah. you know? Yeah. Even yeah. though they were trafficking in that kind of broad yeah. stuff, they would always add this layer of, yeah. I don't know, like, um, existential crisis or something yeah well looking into the lens was a very bold thing to do at the time mm. for ollie yeah. um, which i think was um which was i think happened by accident didn't it did it happen by accident? Oh, really well yeah. yeah they were shooting something and i think uh well, the story of stan would deliberately say he would t- he'd say like we're gonna have you done by f- four don't worry ollie and yeah. then 415 420 yeah. 430 and then he would do these things where he needed yeah. a certain reaction when Oliver was like dying <laughs> to get out of there yeah. to go to the golf course and he and, he, and i think with those the, the yeah the the look but i think the first look down the lens was like an, an accident thing where he just said oh that's great do that again when he was genuinely you know <laughs> impatient tired there's a documentary it. where someone said that yeah it was like it was just uh, and the tie twiddling thing that was an accidental thing he was doing because I think he he didn't know what to do in the middle of a scene or something and he said do that tie Stan said do that thing with your tie again you know? we're going to take a quick break and then I'll be back with more with John C. Riley and Steve Coogan when we come back in just a moment Use your sports and pop culture knowledge to make some extra cash this week with BetDSI. BetDSI.com has been paying winners for 20 years. With a really user-friendly interface and mobile site and the fastest payouts in the industry, it's no wonder BetDSI is top-rated on betting review sites. Simply play, win, and get paid. BetDSI offers betting options for everything from NFL, NCAA football, NBA, NHL, UFC, and all other major sports to politics, reality TV, esports, virtually everything. There's also live betting, which lets you bet on games through the entire matchup, every play and every minute until the end. Try for yourself. New members get 100% bonus match using promo code KICK. That's more than double your money to start winning today. Just go to BetDSI.com and use promo code KICK to get this limited-time 100% bonus offer and make some extra cash on the sports you know and love. It's only a game until you bet it at BetDSI. And now, back to the podcast. 
there was a love there that maybe was lacking in similar comedies of the era. When I think back to like the Marx Brothers, which I love the Marx Brothers, mm -hmm. there is a lack of the kind of cynicism and the sarcasm that you see in like a Marx Brothers or yeah. even Abbott and Costello. Sure, there's a kind of, a, there's a there's an edgy kind of uh, um, uh, aggression to a lot of that stuff. And which, as I say, sometimes gets confused confused with being more more, more uh, sophisticated, that to be cynical mm -hmm. is sophisticated and to uh, be uh, poignant or have um, uh, a kind of a, a, a gentleness means that you, you're, you know, you, you're the reverse. So those are two very different examples you give. Abbott and Costello, to me, represent a kind of exceptionalist American thinking post-war. Right, it was like right. hyper-verbal, really cynical, hard-edged. One guy's dumb, the other guy's smart, mm -hmm. and you're meant to believe that guy really is smart and that guy really is dumb. Um, the Marx Brothers, their identity was born out of being Jewish Americans, mm -hmm. looking at what the world did to Jewish people and mm -hmm. coming from a yeah, ghettoized yeah, kind of performing yeah. background of the Jewish theater and all that. So the there's a world weariness to the Marx Brothers routines that that's specific to their experience. And yeah, that's yeah. different than Laurel and Hardy. Laurel yeah. and Hardy almost seemed beyond their time. They they seem to be yeah, kind of talking about issues of the, of the mm -hmm. human race, not issues of their time. You that's know? that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And now uh, you can't work together for 35 years without having some hurt feelings and some resentment. Uh, what do you think was at the crux of the tension between Stan and Ollie? Well, we hypothesize in the film uh, that it was a great, uh, you know, fissure in the relationship when when Oliver went off and did the one film he did without uh, Stan once their career began. Actually, mm -hmm. they both worked in film previous to working together. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, that look. The truth is, I've been in a lot of artistic partnerships, and so has Steve. And what happens is, in order to protect the act, you overlook the personal. So mm -hmm. if someone's late in the morning, you could it's driving you crazy. You could tell them, hey, man, you were late. But then you know, if you do that, there's going to be tension. And the, and the thing we have to do on stage tonight I, is... I was never late, by the way. <laughs> you know, you were never late. But I'm just, in, <laughs> I'm just making an example of a little thing that might annoy you that yeah, you overlook yeah. uh, to benefit the act. Yeah. And what after what happens, you know, even just the smallest things, even if it wasn't such a big betrayal as working with someone else, uh, just the small little things mm -hmm. that start to drive you crazy. If you bury enough of them mm -hmm, mm -hmm. To, in order to keep the act going, eventually it rears its head in this ugly mm -hmm. way. You know, mm -hmm. they, they all band together these sure. small hurts and become these dragon yeah. conversations. You know, yeah. Well, I've had I've had I've worked in lots of bunker like comedy writing rooms, and uh, you laugh a lot, um, and sometimes you row as well. And the rows are always as a result of the um, hothouse, intense experience of working very hard and trying to make something really good. Mm -hmm. um, it's almost inevitable. Uh, fortunately, John and I managed to avoid that. I think we kind of say we skimmed close to each other maybe a couple of times. But I don't think we ever. We don't, I don't think we came to blows. Well, we weren't looking at thirty <laughs> years together. That's we're true. Like, yeah. I we just got to get through yeah, three, three months. We got to three months and we're done. Yeah. yeah. Uh. One thing that I found really amazing is that apparently, even after Oliver Hardy retired, Stan kept writing scripts for Laurel and Hardy. It's hard to know what to make of that. I mean, depending on how you look at it. 
it's either a form of therapy or a form of delusion. Uh, do you think that he looked on Ali as his muse? I think it comes down to that line that my character says in the movie, which is, what else are we going to do? You know, what else are yeah. we going to do? This is what the guy spent mm -hmm. his life doing. He didn't write for anyone else. He wrote for yeah. he, he and Ollie. Yeah. So if he loved writing, that's yeah. what he wrote it, about. It, it's, yeah. I, I, and I think it, it's, it's, uh, it's probably a little bit of, uh, of the two. But if something helps you, clearly he knew that they weren't going to, sh he wasn't, wasn't going to find another, he wasn't doing it because he was hoping to discover another uh, Ollie. He was doing it because that's what he'd always done. And, um, and you know, uh, uh, some of us are lucky enough to do something that, uh, as long uh, you know, that we, even if we didn't get paid for it, as long as we could make a living, you know, uh, uh, pay the bills, we do it anyway. And uh, uh, so you know, do do it uh, unpaid. Don't tell. Yeah, don't movie tell. business requires a lot of cooperation of other people with money, <laughs> and when you don't have that cooperation, and when yeah. you're an actor, uh, it can be really tough to do what you want to do yeah. for a living if you're not being asked to do it by by a movie company. So I, I bet in some way it was some way for Stan to continue working in the movies, mm -hmm. yeah. even though movies weren't, weren't knocking on the door yeah. anymore. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And in the movie, we see some of your battles with Hal Roach, the producer who did most of the Laurel and Hardy movies as working actors. Are you glad that you kind of weren't around during the golden age of Hollywood? I mean, it seems well, romantic, but actors were basically one step above being indentured servants in the studio system. Uh, uh, I mean, yes. I mean, you, the thing is, you would get... They, they were paid what, by reckoning of anyone's reckoning at the time a very good salary mm -hmm. um, compared with any ordinary job. But it was not... Um, but it wasn't going to pay for their retirement. Right. And, uh, and they... You know, Hal Roach was a hard-headed businessman. That's to be kind. And... Um, you know, he he uh, he played them off against each other and knew what their insecurities were and uh, and divided and conquered in terms of the deal they got. And uh, so that that's you know that's uh, yeah that's that's the, the way that I, I often think because I I'm you know people call me a character actor all the time. Some and my dad was obsessed with character actors. He taught me who all the great character actors were of the 1940s anyway. And uh, so I often think of uh, put, trying to put myself in in that situation. Like you asked us, what would it, how would you fare in the studio system? And in some ways, yes, your worry workaday actors were treated like cattle, you know. Mm -hmm. But if you if you made a few good pictures, like you could become a well known movie star. And in that case, so one of the big things that we have to deal with as modern actors is generating the next job finding mm -hmm. it looking for it generating it, finding yeah. it looking for it but if you were on a studio contract and you were in a hit movie you you're going to be working as long as those movies kept hitting you know like so that's one part of it that you wouldn't have to worry about so yeah. you know i did this animated movie at disney and that in a way was like having a studio job having to go to the same place and report for duty and i actually found it really comforting mm -hmm. and and nice to have the support of a place you know knowing I'm going to be working for this place for three years or whatever it is, I, you don't have the terror of, like, what's going to happen mm -hmm. when this all ends? But uh, yeah. maybe I'm p painting yeah. a rosier yeah. picture of it than, than, than I mean, well, some, some people did get, you know, I mean, uh, uh, they did have security. That's what Ollie liked about it. In actual fact, he didn't want to break out on his own, really. He liked the security right. of having a salary and knowing where the next paycheck was going to come from. 
Right, right. And money, I guess, never came easy, or at least they weren't good at uh, hanging on to money, particularly Ali, I guess, was a gambler. And it reminds me of years ago, I guess. Well, the alimony didn't help. Well, yeah, yeah. yeah, that, yeah. Of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, what, three yeah. or four, four yeah. marriages? Yeah. yeah, and it reminds me, I guess, yeah, probably like 20 years ago, I lived next to what used to be Stan Laurel's house. And in my mind, I thought, oh, old school movie star. He must have some pick fair-like place in Beverly Hills. And here it was. It was like this extremely modest, pretty small little ranch house in Sherman Oaks. That that was his they, big place, by the way. Yeah. He right, ended yeah. up in an apartment in <laughs> Santa yeah, Monica. Yeah. 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 And I've heard from other entertainers who they would call him up because he didn't have an un- unlisted number. He was so cheap mm. that he wouldn't have his number unlisted. That's so right. Like Dick Cavanaugh and all these kids would call up Stan Laurel and he would talk to them on the phone when they were these little five-year-old kids and so forth. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I guess if nothing else, this movie is a cautionary tale for an actor about why you need to have a business manager. <laughs> yeah, I think, well, but I think Stan, yeah. Stan was very happy to talk to people on the phone when they mm-hmm. called him. I heard some of the conversations because oh, yeah. uh, re- some people recorded them right, right. Uh, with the tape recorder from their end of the call. And so... Uh, yeah, he, he, yeah, at he, the time that those phone calls were coming in, they weren't so legendary. You know what I mean? They were kind right. of mm. forgotten. So mm, I, I bet yeah. they felt kind of happy that people mm-hmm. were still cared enough to reach out. Yeah, um, it, it, yeah. it's funny because you don't, you, yeah, they weren't, they weren't, people forget, people think that when they see these old, old a lot of these even iconic movies, um, there was a fallow period after you know after they had their life at the cinema. Mm. That I thought that, that was it. There was, never, there was not going to be any other medium to exploit it. So, you know, in, in, yeah, in, in, once you were out of the theaters, then you're out oh, yeah. of the theaters. Yeah. That's yeah. it. There you was know, no in, other. In the, those days, t- TV was as unforeseeable uh, a kind of uh, you know, media as, as the internet was 30 years ago. Sure. You know, people just didn't, couldn't see right. it. Couldn't and see it wasn't it really, I guess, till the 60s when they started having revivals in movie yeah. theaters yeah. Well, and, and, and reruns on it, television. And pl- plenty of things were appreciated in a different mm. way. There's a kind of a craft that people would, I mean, like I remember reading the It's a Wonderful Life. That was kind of a forgotten movie at the time. It came, had its life in the cinema, and it went away. Right. And it was only in the 1960s on TV that, it, that the love for it grew. Mm-hmm. And uh, the same I think is true for Stan and Ollie, is that, that when something's out at the time, you don't analyze it too much. But then years later, you think, why is this stuff still funny? And people sort of appreciate it not just in a disposable way. Mm-hmm. They, they don't just laugh and forget about it. They, go, they laugh and they go, these guys are great. But you're right, they, they, they could have used a better agent. They really could. <laughs> they could have used someone advocating on their behalf purely from a business point of view, mm-hmm. because that is the reason that they were in these dire straits that we present in our film. Mm-hmm. It was right. because yeah. Yeah. they weren't given any back end. They weren't given any television royalties. Yeah. They had no no source of income once those salaries dried up. Um, so, but you know, when you really look at them and how much they cared about their work and and how how much time they spent. Um, crafting this partnership, I don't think they really cared all that much about money mm-hmm. until it was too late. Yeah, oh, that's really? very true. Wow. That's very true. Huh. Yeah. Now you recreate some of their famous bits. Um, some of them are actually incorporated into the film in ways that sort of reference the scene from the music box, the famous scene where they're pushing the piano up the stairs, and then some are more direct. They're either on stage or at one point you recreate their dance that they do in. I forget which movie it was, Way Out Way West. Out West. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Way Out West, which became sort of their hallmark. Laurel and Hardy weren't exactly Fred Astaire and Gene Kelly. So <laughs> did you have to recreate the mistakes as well when you did that? Well, it's funny that dance is almost like it's a joke about being 
not being Fred Astaire right. and Gene, <laughs> Gene uh, what? Ginger Rogers. Ginger Rogers. Yeah. Um, it's, it's literally a dance a child could do at first. Anyway, yeah. it starts from a toe tap to another toe tap yeah to its shuffle you know like and so it builds in this way it's it's actually it's it's really not surprising that it became the hallmark performance of their careers because in a way it's a distillation of what they did so perfectly in so many other ways it is an escalation of a simple idea mm-hmm. you know whether it's destroying a car in a tit for tat battle or whether it's you know failing to get a piano up a set of stairs it would start in this very simple innocent way and build into catastrophe yeah. or into something so complicated <laughs> it's absurd so uh yeah that dance we definitely had to uh, that's the one thing in the film that we did we tried to do forensically like mm-hmm. we're going to do this ex- if we can right. as much as we can we're going to do it exactly right. like right. they did it down to the little right. shambling mistakes uh, you know there's a looseness to that <laughs> mm-hmm. dance it's not mm-hmm. just it's yeah. not like a perfectly executed yeah. dance yeah that was that was uh, quite tough cuz then we had to learn the correct version of the, da- the the version of the dance without the mistakes for when they we did it in the live shows right so right. cuz the other one was recreating a, film, a famous it, film it was scene that's so right yeah, yeah. exactly yeah. so we had to, to we also to, had to add a layer of physical disability to that dance the second mm-hmm. time we do it yeah. you know because we're, we're the same yeah. people we yeah. could have done the dance just we, the same yeah. way but we had a i had keep reminding myself no 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 you can't you can no longer jump like <laughs> or without hurting your knees really bad mm-hmm. or, yeah. yeah yeah now that that scene is part of this extended scene that the film opens with it's a an incredible six-minute tracking shot that follows you guys from the dressing room through this famous Hollywood studio lot and onto the set, right into an argument with Hal Roach. Um, that looked like a really tough scene to shoot from an actor's perspective, or from anyone's perspective, I guess. But one mistake, you've got to go and reshoot all over again. How many takes did you guys have to do? <laughs> well, I think we did about 28 takes of, those, of one section. It's of an, one it's, section. It's, it's actually it's, three pieces it's actually three stitched, stitched together. together yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah, those those are the twenty eight, wasn't there? There's was eighteen on, in the studio, I think I remember. There's mm-hmm. twenty eight was in the the one <laughs> the where we, walking when they walk through the back lot. Yeah, that, we did twenty eight takes of that. Wow! And uh, before we got one, I think that worked. I actually love it when when you have to, you know, film is so stop and start. Yeah. You get so used to or sort of conditioned to directors saying, "Oh no, stop! Uh, do this," or "That was a mistake. Just go again." And you you never get like a long run out of something. Mm-hmm. So when we do these long walking and talking shots in movies, I love it because it reminds me of doing theater. You know, it's like so long, director. <laughs> I'm on my own for the next seven minutes or yeah, whatever it yeah. is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was that was uh, it was kind of enjoyable, but uh, the the toughest thing is that you know if you make a mistake you've got to reset all these hundreds of extras and they're all mm. going to go back to their marks and it's pretty scary in that regard but um i remember having to convince myself because we're supposed to be having this relaxed intimate conversation um very casual conversation and of course that's completely at odds with the thought that if you make a mistake everything's going to right. be crippled <laughs> but i remember sort of uh, thinking at the time i have to act like this doesn't matter Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter if I make a mistake, and counterintuitively, that means you don't make a mistake. No. I mean, as people, when you're walking through that studio lot scene, you want to go, "Whoa, look at that! Look at those showgirls! Know, look yeah, at the yeah. Roman! Holy cow! Look at that!" And you can't because this was just mundane to them. You know, right, just, yeah. right. it was as if they're walking through the factory yeah. floor. You know. Yeah. 
Yeah, and another aspect of the film that was technically impressive is the makeup in this movie is really incredible. I don't think that I've ever seen prosthetics that were more believable and natural in a movie, um, particularly with you, John. You're playing, I think, someone who was like a 400-pound man, and it doesn't look like Eddie Murphy in The Nutty Professor. It looks very authentic. What did all that entail, and how hot was it in that suit? Well, I think Eddie Murphy in The Nutty Professor was deliberately going over the top, mm -hmm. and you weren't. that wasn't supposed to be some cinema verite film. But, um, yeah, uh, we had one of the greatest makeup people in the whole world, Mark Coulier, helping us um, with the exterior of these characters. Um, and... <laughs> Yeah, it was it was interesting because yeah. in some ways as an actor you're like, well, it's it's a very impressive thing that everyone notices, but in some way we had you nothing to do to. with it, you know. Yeah. I'm just inside yeah. of this thing that someone else created, the sculpture that someone else created. Um so the challenge for us was finding the inner life of these people and yeah. why they were the way they were. Why did yeah. they make those gestures? Why did they walk like that? Um, yeah, we, 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 we were a little um, skeptical at first uh, of, uh, you know, the, 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 the idea of prosthetic. Sure, stuff like that. But, understandably uh, so. Because we might think we don't want to turn this into something that's, uh, that gets in the way of the performance. And I was actually sort of, uh, I said, I don't want any makeup. Just, let's just try and get to the core of who these people were, mm. you know, and forget about that stuff. And, and then we did a test and uh, I was like, oh, this is pretty good. Um, I think you know it was it was impressive. It was like oh we can I think we can work with this. Yeah, was, the ball was in our court then. Like well we look like them. We better get to work yeah, with this yeah, act yeah. and this accent yeah, yeah. and this yeah. yeah all of it. Well it, you know it's a hell of a lot easier than doing a De Niro and trying to put on what a hundred or two hundred pounds for a role. I guess. Yeah, I don't even think De Niro put on that much. <laughs> well, yeah, no, no, a hundred is just not yeah, safe. No. no. Yeah. Well. It's been so much fun. Before we go, I just have to ask John, can you do Oliver Hardy's famous line for me? There's some controversy about what that line actually was. It, well, he did. He never Sometimes said, another nice mess you've yeah, gotten us into. He never said, yeah. no, he famously never said, that's another fine mess you've got me into. One of the shows was called Another Fine Mess. There we go. And he said, that's another mess you've gotten me into. But he never said, it's another fine mess you've got me into. That's one for the anoraks. Uh, you guys sound like the real thing. We've well, set the record straight <laughs> on kick-ass news. Well, once again, the movie is called Stan and Ollie in theaters December 28th. Steve Coogan and John C. Riley. thanks for talking with me. My Thank pleasure. you. Pleasure. Thank you. Thanks again to John C. Riley and Steve Coogan for coming on the podcast. Stan and Ollie opens in theaters in New York and Los Angeles this Friday, December 28th. For more information, visit sonyclassics.com slash Stan and Ollie. When you need energy on the go and don't have time to wait in line, grab Espresso Monster. I had one today and it gave me just the shot in the arm I needed. Plus, it tastes so good, I'd drink it anyway. That's because Espresso Monster is a premium blend of espresso and cream made with freshly brewed espresso coffee, hormone-free milk, and a unique energy blend complete with taurine and B vitamins. Each can has three shots of espresso and comes in vanilla espresso or espresso and cream flavors. Close your eyes, take a sip, and enjoy Espresso Monster today. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to Kick-Ass News on iTunes and leave us a review. You can follow us on Facebook or on Twitter at at KickAssNewsPod. And as always, I welcome your comments, questions, and ideas at comments at kickassnews.com. 
I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kick-Ass News. Kick-Ass News is a trademark of Mathis Entertainment, Inc.